in Matthew chapter 16 this morning. And I have to be honest with you, I wasn't sure where we were going to study this morning because obviously there are so many passages that speak about the resurrection. But if you'll remember back with me uh, to last week, if you were here, and if you weren't, I'm going to give a little synopsis. We spoke about Palm Sunday, and traditionally we, we think about Palm Sunday, we think of Jesus coming in on the colt, a foal of a donkey, and as he rides this horse, this, or this, this donkey, this yearling, this newborn animal that's never been ridden, the king of all kings shows not only his lordship over us and his kingship, but he shows us his lordship over creation as this animal that's never carried a rider or a burden allows him to just sit there and walks in exactly where he wants him to go. And that's amazing to me because as Jesus comes in, this isn't just him walking down the street where there's no one around. He's surrounded by this crowd of people that's yelling out. I don't know about you guys, but I haven't spent a ton of time around livestock. But if it's a young animal and it's not used to being around people, and it's never carried a burden before, you don't want to spook it. But they weren't worried about that. They were shouting out, Hosanna, save now, Lord. And they were saying something specific from Psalm chapter 118, speaking of the king, the Messiah. And so as they're speaking this, as they're shouting it out, save us now, deliver us from our enemies, is what they're saying. They saw this king coming into town, who was coming in under a banner of peace, And they said, he's going to be the answer to all of our problems. And the disciples believed this too. They had walked with him for almost three years now. And as they've seen him heal the blind and the sick and and be very straight and forward with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and not fear man at all, not even care what their opinions were when they were crowds of thousands. It says in one story where Jesus took loaves and fish and he divided them and he gave thanks to the father and he fed 5,000 people. Afterwards, it says that they, they kind of crowded in on him. They wanted to make him king right then. Hey, you be our ruler. Who doesn't want a ruler that will give you food? Who doesn't want a ruler that will provide for all your needs? We all do. We all seek for someone that will fulfill to be a source for our needs. And they were no different. They, they were being oppressed by the Roman government. And so as, as they're in this time of political turmoil and oppression and everything else, this guy comes on the scene, and not only can he provide their practical needs, but he can heal the sick, give sight to the blind, make the deaf man hear, raise up the lame man, people who had never walked before, and help them to walk. And so here they are in this kind of crazy dimension of time, And this man comes on the scene able to do all of this. And they're like, hey, let's just put him on the throne now. So as Jesus comes into the town on this foal of a donkey, he comes in like a king would come into their towns. And as he comes in, right after that, there are many Greeks, Greek believers that came in and they said, hey, we want to talk to Jesus. And Jesus, rather than saying, hey, I'd love to have an audience with you. I like fan clubs. He stops and he says, and he starts teaching his disciples. He's been teaching them all along the way, but now he's going on overdrive. It's like when you're in a class, whether it's in college or high school, right before finals week, they get crazy with it and they say, hey, let's review everything I've already taught you. And so Jesus does this the same. But before we get to that point, I want to go back a little bit in the Gospel of Matthew and look at the fact that Jesus had already taught them that he was going to die. 
He said, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. He must be forsaken. He must be treated unwell by the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's read in Matthew chapter 16. In verse 1, he's being inspected by the religious leaders of that day. And, and if you guys know anything about Jewish culture, when they got ready to make a sacrifice of an animal, they wanted to make sure that that animal was just right. And so they would take a lamb, the spotless lamb, and, and then there were people who would inspect it for blemishes. And once it, it was be found to have no blemishes, they would sacrifice it. But until then, they, they didn't know if it was worthy or not. And in the same way, the religious leaders of that day were inspecting Jesus. If he's really the Messiah, then he's going to meet our criteria. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees are seeking a sign in Matthew 16, verse 1. It says, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, he says, when it's evening... You say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern or tell the difference of the signs of the times. He's saying what we say in our day, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors heed warning. And so we look at the sky and we can discern what the weather's going to do. And yet these religious leaders, they knew the scriptures. And he says, you can't tell the difference between the signs of the time. You don't know the day of your redemption has drawn near. And so he says to them, verse 4, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and he departed. He didn't even explain his example. Why didn't he explain his example? Have you ever told your kids to do something and they say why? And maybe the first couple of times you explain to them why, but then you realize that they're really just trying to to wait it out and see if you'll actually make them do it. Lucy does that to us all the time. Why? 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 She doesn't really want to know why. She just doesn't want to do it, even at two years old. Well, the Pharisees were in this same spot. They said, hey, show us a sign. Except the reality is, is if you go back to Matthew chapter 12, they had already asked this question before. So the first time he explains to them why. The second time he says, I'm done. I've already told you. So in Matthew chapter 12, you'll turn back just a couple of chapters. Verse 38 they had asked him this question already. Matthew 12:38 says, Some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And so he, he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. He told them the same thing. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. But he doesn't stop there. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment and with this generation condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. He was disobedient. The Lord says, go and preach to the to the Gentiles, go to Nineveh and tell them that I'm willing to forgive them if they repent. 
No, that wasn't his message at all. He said, go and tell them to repent. He never tells them that he'll forgive them. And so Jonah says, um, I don't like them, so I'm going that way. And he jumps on a ship, and he goes in the direct opposite direction. And then a big storm swells up because the Lord's trying to get Jonah's attention. And Jonah says, hey, um, you know what? I really don't want to do the will of the Lord so bad that um, if you guys want to be delivered from this storm, just throw me overboard. I'd rather die than do what God told me to do. And so they do because they're like, hey, (laughs) we don't like this storm. We'll throw you off the boat if that's all that it takes. And when they throw him off the boat, God had already prepared this big fish to swallow him up. Now, many people uh, debate, is this story a true story or not? Is this even possible? Well, we know now, if you Google it, there are men that have been swallowed by great fish and brought up back on shore, and they don't look so great afterwards. Apparently, being in an animal's stomach for a while, underwater, you get a little pale, you get seaweed all over you, and he describes that in the book of Jonah. Um, But Jesus then quotes the story and uses that as an example. He says, just like Jonah being in the belly of the whale, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth, but what we know about Jonah is that he was brought back up on shore to do what God had given him to do. And in the same way, the Son of Man was killed at the hands of evil men, he was placed in a tomb, and he was risen from the dead. And so Jonah is a perfect picture of this. So we see Jesus, the picture of Jesus in the resurrection, even in the Old Testament. So he says, in the same way. So he tells this to these Pharisees. He explains to them, hey, this is what's going to happen. So Jesus was telling the story, not only of his death, his burial, and then his resurrection, even to his enemies. He told them the gospel. This is good news. But because they disliked Jesus and they wanted to stop him at all costs, they killed the messenger. They killed the man that came to save them. But here we go in verse 5. It says, Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. They were on a, a journey across the Sea of Galilee. They forgot to take bread. And Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Sadducees, or excuse me, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Well, he's saying this to us because we've taken no bread with us. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, You have little faith. Why do you reason among yourselves because you brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets that you took up after they had all eaten? That's what he's saying. Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up after that? How is it that you do not understand that I'm not speaking to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And then verse 12 says, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees weren't there to, to help others. They were there to help themselves to the flock. They were basically shearing the flock, taking advantage of them. They weren't there for the sheep. But Jesus said the good shepherd gives his life in exchange for the sheep. The good shepherd gets in between the enemies and the sheep themselves. He protects them. Do You know, a shepherd would actually set up a way to keep all of his sheep in, a sheep pen, And the only way that he would shut the gate is that he would lay in between the sheep and the entrance to their pen. He laid in between them and any enemy that could get to them and them getting out of the pen. And so the good shepherd gives his light for the sheep. That's what Jesus taught. 
But the Pharisees, they were only in it for themselves. And because of that, they didn't care how many sheep died or how many people were led astray away from the truth. And so because of that, they tried to kill the truth. But in verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that the Son of Man is? Well, my translation says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? This is a phrase he uses over and over again. So they said, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist because his ministry was very much like John the Baptist, who was a forerunner to him. And some say Elijah, and you can, this makes sense because if you read the Old Testament, all the prophets, Elijah was the one who performed the most miracles. He was, he was known for that. And not only that, but Elijah didn't die. He was taken up, much like Enoch. And so we also have this um, where they think he's Elijah. And others said he's Jeremiah because Jeremiah was a prophet who was a weeping prophet. He was sorrowful. He was always preaching, but nobody listened to him. Uh, Jesus had many of these same attributes. Or one of the other prophets. So they, they say, well, we, we just believe you're a prophet. Um, or they believe you're a prophet. So then he gets a little, he tightens the question a little bit. You know, we all are aware of what other people think, right? You know, we're all aware of man's opinion about things. I mean, you look on Facebook, you know what people have opinions about because they share it openly, right? And, and that's just the reality of human nature. We, we all want our opinions to be known. But Jesus isn't so much concerned about everyone else's opinion. It says of him that he, he didn't give himself over to the opinions of men. He came to do the will of the Father. So then he asks him a more important question. He's like, okay, you guys are all aware of what other people think. Who do you say that I am? And I believe that this is the question that each one of our lives hinge upon. Who do you believe Jesus Christ is? And Peter answers a pretty textbook answer but then Jesus explains to him, hey, the only reason you're able to answer this is because my Father has revealed this to you. The only one, way that anyone can call Jesus Lord is if the Father has opened up his eyes, taken away his spiritual blindness, and given him the ability to confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there is one day coming where every man and woman and child will confess this. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's in Philippians. But the reality is, is many people will not until that day. And that day they will do it forcibly. Until then, we have this opportunity of grace where God goes, I'm going to let you choose on your own. Joshua said the same thing. And Joshua, uh, in the very beginning, he says, choose this day whom you will follow. He says, don't be divided between the idols of this land and serving God who delivered you from the place of bondage in Egypt. And so Jesus asked them the question, who do you say that I am? So ask yourself the question this morning, who do you say that Jesus is? But then Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. The word there, it's not his last name, but Messiah, Christ, it's his title. You are the deliverer. You are the savior. You are the Lord. You're the son of the living God, he says. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Now, I think it's interesting. We just read about Jonah. This is, you know, he's, Bar means son of. So he's saying, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That was his dad's name. 
They didn't go by last names. They went by their dad's first names. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is an encouraging word. Because if you confess Jesus is Lord, you should know that the only way you can say that is if God has revealed it to you. So many people go, well, God's never spoken to me about anything. If you confess Jesus as your Lord before those who you talk to, that's because Jesus has spoken to you. He showed you that. God's speaking to you, whether you realize it or not. But then he says, And I also say to you, verse 18, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So what he's saying is, He's not saying, Peter, I'm going to build the church around you being the, the, the rock. Peter actually means little pebble, stone, Petra. Jesus Christ is the rock on which the church is built. Verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Now, I find this interesting because all through Jesus' ministry, especially if you read the Gospel of Mark, Jesus would do these miracles and he would say, don't tell anybody. Of course, every time you see him do that, they're like, well, I can't help it. Jesus just made me walk and I've not been able to walk my entire life. What do you mean don't tell anybody? Everybody already knows. They recognized me. I was panhandling. They were throwing change in my thing, and now I'm up walking around. They're going to ask me how I can walk now. I'm just supposed to go, well, uh, it just happened? No, they, they would get up, jump around, and skip. We even see that in the book, book of Acts where Peter and John walk up to the temple gate. They have the same power that Jesus had. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They walk up to the temple at the hour of prayer, and as they get there, this man is there who's been lame from birth. And he always, someone takes him to the place of worship so that he can get some sustenance. He can't work. He can't go out and plow in the field or, or reap a harvest. He's got to find some other way to get a, a means of, of living. So he's standing there with a pot or a cup or something. He says, hey, I need alms. And Peter and John, they don't have any money. So they walk up and they, they go, look, if we had money, we'd give it to you. Silver and gold we don't have, but what we do have, we give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, raise up and walk. And this man had not walked his entire life. There was no muscle around his knees, or there was no uh, sinew. There was nothing tying together his joints. He was not able to walk. He was not whole. If you've seen anybody lay down for two weeks because they've been sick, they lose muscle mass just because they haven't been using the muscles. If you don't use it, you lose it. So when they pull him up, he is made whole, and he doesn't just start walking around and go, hey, look, I can walk. It says that he jumps up and down, and he praises the name of Jesus in the temple. Now, the people in the temple at that time thought they'd killed Jesus. So why is this name being spoken, and why is this guy able to walk? We all recognize him. We see him every time we come to prayer. So the power of God to raise those who are broken. He says, He commanded his disciples that they should tell no one. So this was before the day of Palm Sunday that we celebrated last week, where for the very first time in his ministry, he walks into town and he not only accepts worship, as they say, Hosanna, he's our king, deliver us, O Lord. But then he also, when they tell him, hey, make your disciples be quiet, Jesus says, if they didn't praise me, even the rocks would cry out. Because I'm not just king over them. I'm king over all the earth. 
Nature itself proclaims the glory of God. And so, Peter's had a pretty good statement here, right? So Jesus is Lord, that's what I have to say. But then, in verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed. Jesus forewarned his disciples, I'm going to be killed. Because my question is, when he's betrayed on the night of his betrayal, and he's, he's taken by these people that, you know, they, they bring a bunch of weapons, they got torches, they take him at night, and, the, and they take him away, and Jesus had told them, hey, the shepherd's going to be struck and the sheep are going to scatter. Oh, no, we won't be scattered. But when he's struck, when he's taken, nobody sticks around. I always think about Peter. Kelly was talking to me about this this week. We were kind of pondering all of the events that happened on the last week of Jesus. And it's interesting to me that I always think about Peter betraying him. I always think about Judas. But the reality is none of them stuck around. Imagine, if you will, you're going to do this thing to save everyone in the whole world to provide this amazing salvation and it's hard he's praying in the uh, garden of gethsemane and as he's praying there he's sweating great drops of blood it's it's something that happens when someone's super stressed out it's a medical condition there's a fancy word but i don't know it but he was sweating great drops of blood because he was so stressed out he felt the weight of what he was getting ready to do and he was tempted in every way to not do it and as he went he didn't even have the support of his closest friends around him. The people that had been with him for 12, excuse me, the, 12, the 11 disciples at least that had been with him for three years. If I had a friend for three years and I was going through an ordeal like that, if they didn't go with me, I'd be pretty stinking discouraged. But he kept going. He didn't stop because his friends stopped. That kind of a side trail there. So Peter took him aside after he had told him all these things, that he'd be killed. But notice here in verse 21, he also told them, and be raised on the third day. They received the same message. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, Peter's just told everybody, hey, Jesus, you're my Lord. And then Jesus tells him what's going to happen, not if it'll happen, or, but it's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to betray, they're going to, do all kinds of wicked stuff. They're going to lie about me, and then I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to be raised on the third day. And Peter, Peter takes him aside, give him a little, little uh, counsel there. Hey, Lord, this isn't going to happen. Not if I'm one of your buddies. I'm going to wail on those guys because they're not going to touch you. I'm going to be, you know, you're going to, I'm going to be your defensive guy. I'm going to jump in front of you. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, "Far be it from you, Lord." This shall not happen to you. Do you realize what a contradiction of terms it is when someone says, Lord, but tells them no? It's like when your children look at you and say, Mom, I love you, and I respect you, and I'm sorry for what I did, but I will not stop doing it. Now, do they really love you? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet not do the things that I tell you to do? And we're like, well, I... I never really thought about it that way. And we do that in our day-to-day lives without even realizing it because we're still walking according to the pattern of this world. But Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and lean not 
on your own understanding. See, Peter's leaning on his own understanding. He goes, Lord, if you're going to come in and be our king, we're going to, you know, I'd like to sit at your right hand and that'd be nice. But if you're going to come in and be our king, the only way you can do that is if you don't die. You can't sit on a throne if you're dead and in the grave. He's not listening because Jesus told them, I have to defeat death first. I'm going to raise from the dead and then I'll be your king. So he says there, Verse 23, Jesus rebukes Peter. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan. Now, in the last phrase, he says, hey, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood's not revealed this to you. But then he says, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but you're mindful of the things of men. Then Jesus begins, he doesn't just leave him with the rebuke. Now he begins to instruct him. He says, Peter, disciples, listen to me. You're not getting what I'm trying to bring across. If anyone desires to come after me, that phrase just means if anyone desires to follow me, if you really want to follow Jesus, here's the pattern. You have to start by denying yourself. He says, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. I'm not very good at denying myself. I'm going to be full honest with you. I like to um, do what I want. We're good at self-denial. You know, if we want to go on a diet, we we will deny ourselves food, right? But how good are we at doing God's will instead of our own? How good are we at listening to the voice of the Lord, even when it's hard, rather than listening to our own? And, and that's why Jesus taught his disciples. He says, when you fast, pray. You're, you're, when you fast, he's, he's saying fasting is basically telling your flesh, I will not do what I know you want me to do. And it's only for a time to learn to, to deny ourselves. Hey, my belly's telling me I'm hungry, but I'm not going to eat today because I want to listen to the Lord. I want to be hungry for the Lord. And that's what Jesus did right after he was baptized. He says, you know, he said, uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He is the bread. He is the one that's called to sustain us. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him first deny himself. And it takes self-denial to admit I'm a sinner and I need delivered from my sin. Let him take up his cross. What is the cross? Is it a pretty pendant? We've made it that way. And I think it's a good reminder. I don't think there's anything wrong with wearing one. But it, it's a death instrument. The cross. Do you know what the, the word excruciating means? It means intense amounts of pain. But it comes from, the, in, in there is the root word cross. Pain that's put on by a torture device. You know? And so here we have this where Jesus is explaining if you want to follow him, you have to learn to deny yourself. Not for the sake of a diet or not for the sake of, you know, working out. You know, you have to deny yourself all the yummy food you want to eat if you want to get in shape, right? Or if you have to, you have to deny yourself something to be able to do something else. It's an opportunity cost. If you want to save up money to buy something, you have to not buy the other thing. I learned that in, uh, you guys ever seen in the 80s, they had these things called three, two, one, contact. And it was like this little video they showed us at school and they talked to us about opportunity costs. I think they need to bring that back, by the way, because there are many times where I talk to people and they're like, yeah, I want to buy this thing, this thing, and this thing. And I'm like, oh, you better, I guess you're going to have to like budget. And they're like, why? 
Well, because you still only make the same amount of money. It's going to have to come from somewhere, you know. Um, anyway, I don't know where my mind went on that. Rabbit trails, that's what I do. Verse 25, he says this, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but ever, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is a man, is it to a man, if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Remember, Judas is going to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And what he wanted was money. He wanted material wealth. He didn't deny himself what he wanted. But because he didn't deny himself what he wanted, he missed out. He sold out the very son of life, the, the one who was going to deliver him from his sins. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's a pretty good question, right? What are you willing to exchange your soul for? What are you selling your soul for if that's the case? We do it for all kinds of stuff. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, fast forward. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 27. And we'll read through uh, what happens. Because Jesus has revealed to Peter, hey, you got a dual nature going on here. Are you serving your opinion or what you think that I can do? Because Jesus was getting ready to deliver people from their enemy, but it just wasn't a political enemy. He was going to deliver them from themselves. He's going to deliver them from sin, from the power of sin, and even deliver them from man's worst enemy, death. Man has no answer for death. Do you know that even if they do find a cure for cancer, that it's really only delaying the inevitable? I'm not saying that we shouldn't look for a cure for cancer. It's pretty wicked, and not one of us has probably not been touched by it. But the reality is, is when people are delivered from cancer, they're still not delivered from death unless they know Jesus and have a personal relationship with him. So in Matthew chapter 27, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea, sorry, verse 57, named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. He laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. He rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb, and he departed. They were burying him because the next day was the day of the Sabbath. And so they kept the Sabbath, and they couldn't go and minister to Jesus, you know, preparing his body so it wouldn't stink. They were going to basically anoint his body. Verse 61, and Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. I find it interesting that the ladies were there when he was buried and then they went and they observed the Sabbath and then they're the first ones back there the next day. It shows me that uh, ladies are a lot more soft-hearted and sentimental than guys are, right? No, no surprises there. Verse 62, and on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, so they observed the Sabbath, they followed the law, and then the day after that, they got up early, and the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, after three days, I'm going to rise. 
Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Isn't it interesting that the first ones that are mentioned here are actually the enemies of Jesus? They took to heart what Jesus said. Jesus said, I'm going to rise on the third day. They said, hey, there's something to this. We need to react. Now, their reaction was not, let's go see if it was so. Their reaction was, let's make sure we stop whoever's going to steal the body because nobody can raise from the dead. They, even, they believed Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Receiving the same message that the disciples did, and yet we don't see the disciples going there the third day. We see them going back to go fishing. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day. So if anybody was going to go steal the body, we would have known because secular people went and guarded the tomb. Verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. I wonder if Pilate thought perhaps if he's going to be risen from the dead, you're not going to stop him. You know, maybe there was a little belief going on there. Verse 66, so they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Verse 1 of chapter 28, now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door, and he sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. They were so afraid they couldn't move. Kind of like when you're driving down the 221 at night and you see a deer, and they say that the headlights kind of paralyze them. I don't believe that because they're always moving when I see them, and it, they're not trying to dodge me. I'm trying to dodge them. Now, if they get in the way, I guess I'm just going to have to get a new body job done on my jeep you know i'm gonna strap the deer to the top we're gonna have some meat you know i like it a little bit softer anyway but (laughs) i'm not leaving it what may as well get something out of the deal i don't know where that came from just keeping your attention but his countenance was like lightning and he opened it and they became so afraid these are hardened guards, perhaps even the ones that had just been mocking Jesus the day before, you know, beating him, stealing his clothes, casting lots. You know, these are hardened individuals. They're not afraid of anything. And yet this angel shows up and sits on this door, and the guards shook for fear of him. But the angel answered and said to the women that arrived, don't be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, but he's not here, for he's risen. And he said, come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell the disciples that he's risen from the dead, and indeed he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So the best news anyone could ever receive. You ever lost a loved one? I mean, when you're sitting there, you're at the funeral, it's becoming real. It doesn't even sink in until you go to the gravesite and you're like, this is, this is final. And there they were at the gravesite. They went there that morning with some spices and myrrh and they were going to make him smell nice. So if anybody came to visit him, it wouldn't smell bad. And and as they get there, they're going to minister to him. They get ministered to by this angel who says, he's not dead. It'd be like waking up from the worst dream you've ever had. They, they didn't just look at him as some teacher. 
They looked at him as someone who had greatly impacted their countenance. These were sinners who no one loved them. No one cared about them. And Jesus said, hey, you know, Mary Magdalene, she was a prostitute. And he spoke to her words of grace. You have worth. You're not spent. You're not worthless. God loves you. I love you. Move forward with your life. Move forward being forgiven. And so these people are like, this man who's forgiven us, he's dead. He's no longer with us. And so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear. (laughs) They were a little scared, but also with great joy. And they ran to bring his disciples the word. They went to deliver the word. I can't imagine that they got winded that day as they ran. I think they were so excited they didn't care if they were short of breath because they had received the best news that anyone had ever received. So, at the end of the chapter, here's what Jesus meets with with his disciples. Excuse me, let me read verse 11. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. (laughs) All of it. The angel, everything. Can you imagine going and telling your boss, Hey, uh, my job wasn't really done right because angels showed up. And they scared us. Really? You guys are the worst soldiers ever. Angels? You fell asleep, didn't you? You know, like, (laughs) what really happened? You know, and and they had fallen away from their post, realized that their lives are threatened by them not fulfilling this. Because if they were found to be delinquent in their duties, uh, they could be put to death. And so... um, Here's the plan, verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. They bribed them, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. We'll keep you from being put to death. Just lie about this thing. Look at this. The elders of Jerusalem were told, I'm pretty sure he rose from the dead because we saw an angel and that's what he told these ladies that came up. And they said, well, let's just lie about this. Let's cover up the truth. Um, And it doesn't even say why. So they took the money and they did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. And there are many today who refute the resurrection because they know that it's the linchpin in our faith. It's what seals the deal. It's what proves our religion is the one to follow if you want to have a relationship with God because no one's ever raised anyone from the dead. So then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They still struggle with it. They're seeing Jesus who they saw killed. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, he gives them instructions. This is why we do church the way that we do church here. I want to explain something. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he says, while you are going, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said this, he said, go and make disciples. The reason that we do things the way that we do is we want you guys to be the evangelists. The the church is meant to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. 
Jesus didn't go say, go make in converts. Don't go make converts. He didn't say that. Converts are people who make a profession of faith and then their life stays the same. Jesus said, go make disciples. Disciples are people who hear the word of God and they go and do it. And as they go and do it, God works through all the other mess. And there's a mess. Each one of us is a mess. That's the reality. Jesus didn't say, go to church and act like everything's fine. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. His word is meant to wash us and cleanse us and instruct us on the way everlasting. That's why we focus on it so much with our services. We don't want people to be converted to be called Christians. We want people to have a living relationship with a living Savior And as they do, let Jesus work through the mess. And as he does, what you'll see is that you are not what you will be, but you're not what you once were. And you'll have joy. I heard a guy the other day, and I probably already mentioned this because that's what I do, I repeat stories. And it was on Joy FM. It was on March 17th, so it was St. Patrick's Day. And they interviewed the lead singer from Wren Collective. They do that song, Build Your Kingdom Here, and My Lighthouse that we've sang, and and he asked him, he said, uh, what do you guys describe your band as? And they said, well, we're not really a rock band, and we're not really a worship band, although that is part of what we do. We're not a folk band, although they sound very folky. He said, we're a celebration band, because we have something to celebrate about. And I like that. We have something to celebrate about. He said, well, what's your main purpose as a group? And they said, we're just after joy. We need joy to get through this life. Joy is not happiness because happiness is circumstantial. It depends upon my situation. He says, joy. And I'm like, okay, well, that's great, but let's, how, do, how do I get joy? Well, there's a psalm that says, in his presence is fullness of joy. Well, we get joy by spending time in Jesus' presence. He says, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Have you had joy lately? Have you had a heart that longs to celebrate? There are days where I really don't. But most of the days that I don't have much to celebrate, it's because I haven't been serving a living Savior. I haven't been walking with Him rather than walking and then talking to Him later. There's not meant to be any condemnation in this. What I'm saying is this should convict you to draw close to Him. It should drive you to be in his presence. And it's something that takes time getting used to because there are some days I get to the end of the day and I'm like, I'm worn out. I I haven't even talked to you today, Lord. Thank you for my lunch. You know, thank you for all the things that you've done today. Thank you for sustaining me. I really wanted to go off on so-and-so. Thank you for shutting me up. You know, all of those things are things we can be thankful for. Thank you for my salvation. And as we're thankful for all the little things, We remember that he's with us wherever we go. And it gives us joy because we're in his presence. I don't know what all you guys have going on today, but take some time to celebrate with the Lord, just you and him. Whether it's in the car where you're all driving together, take some time to spend just with him personally. It will give you joy. And then no matter what the family situations are, no matter who you're going to see today, you'll have joy anyway. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the good news.